You're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, this morning, the headlines out of London are hailing the first citizens to get the COVID-19 vaccines produced by Pfizer and BioNTech. Among those who have been watching the events unfold are Hawaii residents who took part in the clinical trials here in the islands. Not everyone is in a rush to get the vaccines. There are some who aren't convinced it will be safe. But Ryan Ozawa, who agreed early on to be a guinea pig to test the experimental drug, had no qualms about signing up. Ozawa may be familiar to HPR listeners. He was a longtime co-host of Bite Marks Cafe and is currently communications officer for the um, real estate high-tech company, Hawaii Information Service. It's very exciting, and especially because we in the United States are very close to that as well. I mean, just this morning, the FDA said their analysis affirmed the effectiveness of this very same vaccine. So uh, it's just a matter of time. Um, Certainly, the U.K. is a bit ahead of us, but uh, it's all good news. And I really, really hope that we can see the same amount of enthusiasm uh, that they have in the U.K. here in the U.S. Yeah, the response that that people will... uh step up and uh, and get the vaccine if they want to be protected. Yeah, it's a different kind of climate here in the United States, and everything is politicized. And, uh, you know, there's some problematic um, conspiracy theories, etc. So it probably will be more of an uphill climb for our public health officials to see the level of opt-in that they prefer. But because the initial set of the vaccine is so limited, I'm pretty sure they're going to have very good success with that demographic it's only when it gets to the general public later next year where I think it's going to be more of a fight. Well, I have to say, when I learned that uh, you volunteered for the trials, I was like, wow, you're, you're brave. Um, mm. you know, what was going through your mind? What made you decide to step up? Well, I am certainly an advocate of public health and vaccines, et cetera. I will confess that it was my daughter who was the most excited uh, to get involved in it. Um, she has an even stronger uh, social justice and uh, public health um, mindset than I do. And again, it's just a matter of being a part of the solution when we're all trapped at home and uh, wanting to be able to get back together with friends and family or return to our offices. There's not much the average person can do, but certainly signing up for a vaccine trial is a small thing that you could do to contribute in some way to that objective. So describe to our listeners what that involvement was like. Uh, It was uh, very professionally done. I mean, they were pulling in 40,000 or more across the country. I think they did a thousand or so here in Hawaii, which is unusual. We don't often get to host one of these trials, but I think they were very interested in Hawaii's uh, diverse demographic. Uh, from what I can understand, they were also looking to correlate some of their findings here with their program in Japan. So they were lo- they're looking for specific demographics at a time. And basically, it's two shots about two weeks apart. Um, that would be what the treatment is for the vaccine trial. They want to monitor how you're doing. So there's blood tests mixed in there uh, for COVID antibodies, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, as long as you're okay with needles, and nobody really loves needles, uh, there wasn't any problem whatsoever doing what you had to do to contribute. You still don't know whether you got, what, the actual vaccine or a placebo, right? That's right. It's a 50-50 double-blind test. Even the people administering the test don't know whether they're administering the real thing or basically uh, salt water. Everybody I know who's enrolled in it thinks they got the real thing, which I always find fascinating. 
because statistically that is very unlikely. I think it's more a matter of psychosomatic thinking. But we are supposed to find out at some point, especially if we receive the placebo, whether or not that was the case, because, of course, it would be important to us to have the opportunity to get the real vaccine um, when it becomes available. So when does that happen, do you know? Well, in terms of for us, I know we're a little ahead of the line of the general public, but I would say we're probably still behind uh, first responders and the other recommended groups by the FDA. I'm certainly in a hurry to get the real thing. If I didn't get the real thing, and our family is as well, I mean, we're motivated largely by my wife, who's a metastatic breast cancer patient and has been very, very cooped up (laughs) and very protected in our bubble. And we would like to have more safety around her and maybe get to the point where, you know, she can have a little more freedom as well. Well, you have your daughter, your firstborn, and then your youngest also taking part in this study. That's right. My uh, 22-year-old, a poli-sci grad, and as you can imagine, very engaged that way. And my 16-year-old, who was a little bit more of a surprise, he wasn't eligible when they started. But, you know, Pfizer moves from group to group and expands that window for these tests, and they did want to test people younger than 18, and so that was my uh, youngest opportunity to get involved. So he's about um, two months behind us in terms of taking the tests and all of that. It'll be really interesting how all of this aligns to the public release of the vaccine. And then since you got those two shots, have you had to go back in for checks? Yep. So there's a standard regiment of visits for nasal swabs and blood tests, and actually there's a app that they give you to put on your phone where you check in every week to just basically say, are you are you fine? Yes, I'm fine. Are you fine? Yes, I'm fine. So they're scheduling appointments as far out. And I think my next one is in February or March. And uh, I would imagine by then all sorts of things will going to be different about how this vaccine is deployed. But technically, it's a two-year study. There might even be a three-year study. So they're going to keep track of us regardless just to make sure, again, that you have the data you need for more long-term results in terms of the effects of the vaccine. Given your experience, would you recommend this taking part in a, a trial like this? Well, taking part of in a, a trial and a test and being a guinea pig probably does require a slightly different mindset. And I would certainly recommend it in the sense that, again, you're contributing to public health, but there are risks involved. And as we saw with some of the other vaccine candidates out there, there were a couple of abnormalities or aberrations that needed to be chased down to make sure that there wasn't a genuine danger for participating. I would certainly recommend it. I mean, one of the incentives for my youngest, I will confess, is the $150 per office visit stipend that they pay (laughs) you to participate, which he's willing to do to put towards some sort of video game equipment. Uh But uh, again, if you're the type of person who gives blood to help your community, and I I hope you are, um, I think that participating in vaccine trial is a perfect companion way to uh, contribute that way. Was there any point in time where you felt, oh, I don't know, a little apprehensive or worried? I think it's just a matter of if there are side effects and they give you a very detailed rundown of what could potentially happen. It's not quite as bad as watching those drug commercials on TV where they have to talk very, very quickly to tell you about all the side effects that might happen to you that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're like, wait a minute, I'm not sure if that's worth taking the drug. But um there really wasn't that much fear. My daughter freaked out the most about the blood test, which actually would be part of any medical care. So I thought that was funny. The vaccine was only a secondary thought for her. There's a story in the Washington Post this morning about, I think the second person to get the Pfizer vaccine uh, was a man named William Shakespeare. It's adorable. I mean, I think that this is all very good you know, public health policy and frankly, public relations policy on the part of the government 
in the UK to, you know, demonstrate that it's safe, that it's something to celebrate, that it's something that we should all uh, be glad is finally happening, given the year that we've just had. I'm really wondering, you know, if we're going to have that same kind of celebratory atmosphere in the United States. I mean, I would have loved to have been able to say, oh, let's meet the first vaccine recipient in each state, or let's meet the first vaccine recipient in your neighborhood. I mean, uh, that's how you personify it. That's how you make it seem real and uh, something that's relevant to you. But I love it. I love it. Yeah, the, I love the first line in that story, to be or not to be vaccinated. That is the question. <laughs> <laughs> they they probably had that in their head when they, when they said, let's put this guy on TV. Yeah, and uh, it was interesting because they talked about the nurse that administered the vaccine, and she's from the Philippines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a global it's a global concern. It's a, uh, a global advancement that we've made. I mean, uh, say what you will about whether you are confident in an accelerated review process or something like this, but it is historic on so many levels, and I think that, you know, 95% uh, efficacy in all of their testing and affirmed by the FDA is is very impressive considering how fast everybody had to move. It seems like it's not fast enough for some people, but anyone who's been involved in public health knows that the government trying to call it Operation Warp Speed is not entirely just a cheesy label. Well, you know, given your background with technology, um, what what is it that has struck you about the concerted effort to battle this pandemic? I think technology is a critical part of, you know, combating this. Now, I think that it is smart for our elected leaders and community leaders to emphasize the human part and the human responsibilities of doing the right thing to protect other people if you're not even interested in protecting yourself. And that is, you know, probably step one in all of this. But technology is clearly a big part of why this was successful, both in terms of the development of it and now to the distribution and uh, implementation of it. I think that, you know, the Pfizer vaccine is actually more complicated to distribute logistically, given its requirements to be kept at, uh, you know, almost space-like cold uh, temperatures. But the other uh, Moderna and other vaccines are going to be a little less restrictive in terms of how they get distributed. And I would say there's probably five or six more vaccine candidates we'll see in the next year with different ways of delivery. And soon it'll be in a pill. And soon it'll be in a nasal spray. It's it's very impressive. Technology is, uh, I think, key to how we're going to address these in the future, because the bad news is this is certainly not going to be our last pandemic. You know, and some of the, some of the technology has been embraced to different degrees in different countries. Yes. I'm very excited about the app-based approaches that we've seen, even just in Hawaii, to helping deal with the coronavirus pandemic, whether it's an app designed for or used by college students at UH or by workspaces to make everyone take a survey before they come to your place of business. And uh, finally, at long last, the official uh, Department of Health sanctioned contact tracing app called Aloha Trace Alert. I personally feel that the Department of Health is moving way too slowly in getting this pushed out to the community, and I, I am nagging them at every turn because I think for this to be effective, it needs to be adopted by as many people as possible and across the entire state, not island by island. But, you know, that is a really great part. I mean, Google and Apple working together on a purely 
a secure and anonymous way to determine whether you've been within proximity of someone who had a positive COVID test, the Google Apple Exposure Notification Protocol. It's uh, really cool stuff from the nerdy point of view, and it works on your phone without you having to do anything. So uh, we are living in magical times as far as tech is concerned. Well, I had to chuckle uh, because I know uh, uh, on my phone it said that uh, uh, I could do the facial, facial recognition with a mask. Right, right. You know, I think that the ways that we've all had to change how we do things living uh, just our everyday lives is also impressive. Certainly working remote is uh, great for a lot of people. It's not always an option. Like uh, being able to unlock your phone because you're wearing a mask, that's a little more complicated than it used to be. So, But I think we're adjusting, and that's what that's what humans do. Yeah, yeah. We'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan. We, we uh, certainly uh, uh, have enjoyed uh, talking with you this morning and gives us a, a nice little perspective on this whole vaccine. But thank you. It's always great. Yes, get your vaccine as soon as you can. That was Ryan Ozawa, who, along with his son and daughter, took part in Pfizer's COVID clinical trials, along with about 1,000 other Hawaii residents. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. And guess what? It's Backyard Quiz Time. Today, a lesson in aviation history and the first commercial flight to Hawaii. On April 20th, 1935, commercial air services were inaugurated with the arrival of a Pan American Airways clipper ship, also thought of as a flying boat. It was less efficient than streamlined land planes. However, during a time when runways capable of handling large aircraft were scarce, these clipper ships were ideal. During the 1920s and 30s, the clipper could land in any city with a sheltered harbor. Captain Edwin C. Music piloted this particular craft on an 18-hour journey from California to Pearl Harbor, carrying bags of federal mail, marking the first air mail to travel from the mainland to Hawaii. So for today's quiz, can you tell us the name of the first commercial Pan American clipper ship? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide, along with civic and community initiatives for residents. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. Blackwater diving. Sound intriguing? Well, do we have a guide for you. Uh, Jeff Millicent loves marine science and photography. He's managed to combine his passions and now has a collection of stunning images put together as a field guide. Science meets art for this Kona diver who started biosciences and bioengineering at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Uh, he also worked at the Waikiki Aquarium. His love for his work is infectious. His images of amazing sea creatures just pop against the night diving blackness. When you see them in the wild, you know, what I tell people that I'm going out with is the, the gelatinous stuff. It really is. It looks like moving, living crystals that are just drifting through the open ocean. And so it, it, they're just beautiful to watch. They're like little prisms, you know. So... I'm kind of baffled. So how do you get these pictures? Because it's almost like you're getting x-rays of these things in the water. Oh, sure. So what we do is we get on a boat and you travel about five miles offshore of the Big Island, which here, especially in Kona, five miles, you you lose about a thousand feet for every mile that you travel offshore, which means here in Kona, five miles will be about 5,000 feet of water. So we're just drifting over the tops right underneath the surface, effectively. Um, and what we're doing, and the reason we do this at night, is we're looking for effectively a blending of a couple of different communities of animals that all come together offshore uh, all over the world's oceans. We just have really easy access to it here. And the communities that I'm talking about, most people know what plankton are, right? So plankton are animals that can't drift against an appreciable current. But a lot of people haven't taken the time to really look at a plankton and say, well, what is that? And it can, some of these things can be fairly sizable. Siphonophores, most people call them uh, a lot of what we're looking at jellies, but that's not entirely accurate. The other community that we really look at are animals that we can call vertical migrators. And these are heavier-bodied animals, and they, they're more muscular, so they can't really turn themselves clear and just drift like the plankton. They, they have to swim a lot stronger, and they have to hide against visual predators. So what they do is during the day, they descend very, very, very deep. Uh, They use the cover of darkness to hide. And then every night, there's not a lot to eat down in the depth. So they have to come all the way up to the high productivity near the surface to feed. And so they do that at night. And that's called vertical migration. And it can be thousands of feet. And what we're doing, and what it kind of does is it kind of squishes everything up near the surface where we are. So we just drift through this biological soup and look for anything interesting that really catches our eye. And after you do it enough times, you start to uh, recognize some of the, some of the, your favorite characters over and over again. And they're, um, it's just a blast. Yeah. So these are the regulars at the bar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I'm looking through your book and you know, there's one of a hairy goose fish. That's really a trippy, trippy looking thing. But, you know, I mean, when, you, when you're down there with your camera in that darkness, I mean, how do you capture that image? 
Oh, man. Uh, you know, the real key to that is is throwing light. Uh, just throw as much light at the thing as you can because you're without light, you're just you're, you're looking at a black image, right? So um, I bring down with me three different lights, uh, two of them for focusing the camera and one for holding in my hand and spotting animals. So my, my program is I, I go around and I, I use the spotter, or in the case of that goosefish, um, I let my wife play the spotter, and she's very good. <laughs> so she, she found that goosefish, and she thought it was a, 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 a jellyfish uh, that they find in California. She was like, this is very strange to see here. And then as she called me over, we both looked at it, and we saw that there was a little eyeball and little fins, and we said, oh, oh, that's something different. So anyway, I use the spotting light to find the animals, and then I'll use my focusing lights that are on my strobe arms to let my camera kind of hone in and focus on that animal. And then, then it's just a matter of pulling the trigger and, and getting the, the exposure right with the strobes and balancing the strobe power with the in-camera settings. But usually, I, I don't know how technical your audience is going to be here, but I'll usually start with something like an f-stop of 10, a shutter speed of 1 200th of a second, and an ISO of, let's say, 400, something like that. So that, that'll be like the strobes. So the focus lights let the, let the camera kind of focus on it and figure out where this thing is. And the strobes are going to throw a really fast, very bright flash of light that's going to kind of freeze the animal in time. And also it's synced with the camera. So when the camera shutter drops, the strobes go off, and then this animal is, is exposed on the, on the sensor at the back of the camera, and however it was sitting. And so part of that whole process is kind of watching this animal and waiting for it to do something that's going to be photogenic and, and do something that is, is, that's going to be interesting to the viewer later. And you never know, a lot of these things are acting in ways that you can't really predict, and a lot of people don't understand exactly what they're doing, but you kind of just watch them and, and wait, for it to, wait for them to do whatever they do, and hopefully you can figure out later after the fact. Well, I'm just, you know, struck by the like the bioluminescence of some of the stuff. I mean, it looks like you're taking an X-ray of a, a, a really goofy-looking <laughs> fish, you know, and so you see their bones. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's and and their eyes basically. So, like one of the one of the concepts, it's kind of hard to get across to people because most people associate the the ocean with coral reefs or tide pools or shallow water environments. Well, those are those occupy only about 8% of the total ocean. So, trying to get them to wrap their heads around a world without any kind of a bottom is amazing. And and one of the cool concepts is that 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 deep water right offshore from Kona actually serves as a nursery for a lot of those shallow water habitats. So a lot of those fish that look like X-ray images, that's just how the fish looks when it's offshore. Uh, that uh, A couple of them are going to come back and be flounders or blennies or wrasses or things that animals that we uh, land dwellers are more much more familiar with. Um, but when they're growing up, they're just little tasty morsels, so they're going to do anything they can to try and blend in against effectively a world of nothing. And so that's that's why they're they're going to be perfectly clear pretty close to it when we when we see them offshore. But in a way it's kind of cool because you know the black background, right? It, it, oh it, man. Uh, yeah. 
it, it just make, it just makes them pop, right? Like that's mm-hmm. it's just so fortunate. A lot of these things, people travel days really on a plane to go down to the South Pacific or even around the islands and do something called a muck dive, and that's where you go down and you sift through the sand and you look for something interesting that crawls out, and then you take a photo of it. And um, every time you do that, the background is always going to be this. It's a mucky, sandy, muddy environment, so it's never a really pretty background. But off on Blackwater, we get to just see this clean black background that's just, it, it really helps the animals pop. It does. And so that term, Blackwater, Blackwater diving, how did that get coined? Oh, man, that was, that was honestly before my time. Um, people started doing this dive, uh, this type of diving, it kind of started with a guy named Chris Newbert, who back in early 1980s was on an assignment with National Geographic and would take his own boat offshore alone at night and just kind of grab a line, jump overboard, and then swim down to about 100 feet and wait for something to drift by, which even somebody like myself who has done this dive hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, I look at that and I think, that guy's nuts. Because he was the first one to do it. He didn't know what he was going to encounter when he swam down to 100 feet. You know, just like Jacques Cousteau when he was first starting his, uh, the, the Aqualung or the first, the first divers in the world, people kept telling them, you know, you're going to get eaten and swallowed up by a sea monster. And, you know, it, at the time, people, I'm sure, were telling Chris Newbert the same thing. Eventually, dive companies kind of realized, well, this is a really cool dive, but we can't really be throwing customers just asking them to hold on to a line and jump overboard. So they, they decided they developed some safety protocols for the divers, and then they had to come up with some kind of a coin for it. So black water, I mean, how how much more accurate can you get than that, right? It's just astounding. When I look at these images, I'm so jealous that you've been able to see these things. You know, my only experience <laughs> in a, a, a night dive was uh, volunteering on a project off Coconut Island where we were looking for coral spawning, and that was amazing. But, oh, I, I am je- very jealous. So that, that goosefish that you pointed out before, right? You know, we, we didn't realize that was a fish uh, at the time. And, in fact, we took a photo of it, and, and we, we knew it was a fish at that point, but we didn't really know what it was. And we started sending it around to all these experts. We sent it to a fish expert who sent it to uh, the head of fishes at the Smithsonian who sent it to another guy, and it bounced around in the, in the email ether until finally it landed in the, on the desk of this guy named Ted Peach, who is an anglerfish expert. And he, he was able to tell us that not only was that the first time that's ever been seen in Hawaii, that was like the third or fourth or fifth time that animal's ever actually been seen, period. And so one of the only other people that's ever seen one of those, it was in Japan, and then a couple of them were in Indonesia. One of the only other people to see one of those also happened to make plush toys. So when I got home from that dive, I, I went online and I was like, man, who, who else has seen a hairy goosefish? And that was one of the first things that popped up. So I was sure to get, uh, and I went out and got my wife one of the plush toys for, I think it was her birthday or Christmas <laughs> or something. It is amazing. And, you know, to think, I mean, I'm amazed that this hairy goosefish had a name of when I think that, <laughs> you know, they're still identifying, you know, some endangered species, endangered snails that... Uh, you know, only recently have been identified. So to think that there may be creatures out there that, I don't know, may go extinct and we don't even know they're there. Yeah, yeah and here's, here's a concept that kind of blew my mind 
uh, kind of on the topic of endangered animals in the ocean and, and what does it mean to truly be rare. On my first blackwater dive, this was back in 2008, I ran into an animal called a cookie-cutter shark. Uh, yes, this is I an animal that. that we know from bite wounds and the sides of, like, swordfish and bigger sharks and, and lots of game fish, whales, dolphins. They've even bitten submarines before. So we know that they're out there. In fact, 20% of the swordfish landed in 2015 that came into Honolulu had a cookie-cutter shark bite in the side of them. But... Very, very few people at the time in 2008, I think I was one of probably 20 or maybe 30 people that had ever seen a cookie cutter shark alive in the water. So by just about any standard, people would consider that to be rare, a rare sighting because nobody ever sees those. But just knowing how many bites get taken out of the sides of animals, that's actually a fairly common animal off in the offshore environment. It's just not something, that's not a place that most of us tend to visit very often. So, and it, the more I did the dive, the more quote unquote rare animals I encountered, like that goosefish or like the cookie cutter shark or like the pygmy shark that I saw or the, uh, how many other animals in that book have rarely or never been seen by another human being. Uh, that was, that was one of the shocking moments to me is how, how little we actually know about the open ocean. That was Jeff Millison, author of the book Field Guide to Blackwater Diving in Hawaii. You can find it online at Mutual Publishing or Amazon or wherever you purchase books. I'm Marco Werman. The UK approved its COVID vaccine less than a week ago. Now people there are getting the first doses. This feels like the beginning of the end, but of course it's a marathon, not a sprint. England's National Health Service director says it'll take many months to jab everyone who needs a vaccine. Britain inoculates on the world. Beginning this afternoon at one. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check has the latest on the most expensive municipal project ever in Hawaii's history. I believe it's coming up on $10 million. Marcel Honoré uh, joins us this morning. Hi there, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Yeah, try $11 billion, but <laughs> <Okay>. counting. <laughs> who's counting? Right? So your story today, uh, we now know who the P3 bidders are, but... Or were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So um, this is the story we have on Civil Beat today is is basically an update on I guess you would call it the fallout from uh, the, the whole uh, public-private partnership or P3 attempt. Um, ever since that was officially shut down uh, by Hart at the behest of the city, which had been trying to get it to do that for a long time. So once that finally happened a couple of weeks ago, we've been waiting to really get the details about those bids and learn more about exactly what happened. And so basically what Hart released yesterday was the identities of these two finalist private sector teams 
that have been vying for the P3 contract for they've been doing that for about two years before the city canceled it in, or, or announced its intent to cancel it in September. So we got the names of uh, you know all the partners behind those teams. But what we still have not gotten and still hope to get are the pricing details, you know, the price information as well as other salient information in that procurement file now that it's canceled, now that it's done. Um, yeah, so that's what that's what came out. Uh, but there are some uh, some bumps in the road. There's some snags as far as getting all of the, the full information. So who are the who are the companies involved? Who are the players? So there's uh, uh, one, the leading. There's basically like three or two or three companies that form like the primary uh, contractors would have been uh, for these these uh, competitors. Um, on one team, it, which was dubbed the City Connection Group. You had a company called Dragados, and you also had them partnering with a couple of local firms, Hawaiian Dredging Construction, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people know does a lot of work out here, as well as Obayashi Design Group. And on the other side, uh, there was Tudor Perini, which we actually learned about through kind of an an odd way where, where they had revealed their participation in an investor call this summer. And Tudor Perini was uh, working uh, with Parsons Construction Group, um, and they were also looking with, with their sub, some of their subcontractors, included two of the three companies uh, that are the primary contractors building rail around the airport right now, and that is Granite Construction Company and Trailer Brothers. So yeah, you really did get a, a big glimpse of you know who's, who's been buying for these contracts yesterday. Right, so these are these are companies that are uh, familiar to us, uh, some of the local companies anyway. Uh, so sure. it, it, it is a bit of a mystery because, you know, we've been waiting to find out, okay, who are these people and, you know, what did they bid? And so it, it's like, okay, we're not going to tell you the price tag. Right. We, we still don't know what the, the, you know, pricing details were behind their proposals. And that's largely because apparently one of the teams, and we're not sure which one, has expressed concerns about revealing that pricing information, even though, uh, as far as we can tell, there's there's nothing that really would uh, inhibit or preclude Hart and the city from releasing that information now that the procurement is completely PAL. But they do seem to want to cater at least to a certain extent to whichever one of these teams doesn't want to uh doesn't want that that released and so what they've it's kind of an, an unusual situation in which they've 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 informed us as, as we're you know the media we're trying to find out more information for the public on this uh what hart is saying is we are giving this team until the end of this week to file an appeal with the office of information practices and if they don't file an appeal then we will just go ahead and release that information uh at, presumably after after this week, uh, just as, as we've planned. If they do, in fact, file an appeal with OIP, then we're just we're going to d- deliberate further on how to proceed with this whole situation. So it's right now we're in kind of a really strange limbo where it's not sure how it's going to be resolved and you know when we would ever get more information on these uh, the, the procurement file. I mean, it could be as early as next week, but 
you know, worst case scenario, which often happens, frankly, in the, in the rail project, uh, you know, that one of these companies could could file something, and, and you know, we'll see. Some sometimes these these OIP appeals, if they're not expedited, I mean, they they can take you know up, upwards of, of two years. Yeah, and I don't out. know that that would happen here, but it's just you would you would be in store uh, for a, a pretty lengthy wait while people are still you know officials are still moving forward. And, and looking to uh, launch a re-procurement to try and award the contract stolen. We're, we're still trying to catch up on the, the P3 details. So that's kind of the scenario that, that could unfold, but we, we just don't know at this point. It's just right. a really unusual situation. Yeah, and I'm trying to rack my brain from, you know, what is it, 30 years ago when, when we did rail and everything fell apart. I think they released that info. But uh, anyway, well, we'll have to see because critical decisions lie ahead. We've got to find out from the FTA if we're going to, keep our money so uh yeah we'll stay tuned but thanks so much marcel sure thing thanks Catherine. we've been talking with marcel Henri with today's reality check read his story online at civilbeat.org Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the virtual exhibition, Why Are You Painting?, featuring artists from across the country finding new ways to engage with paint, on view at honolulumuseum.org. This morning, we went looking for the name of the first clipper, com, uh, commercial clipper ship to fly to Hawaii. During the 1920s and 30s, clipper ships, a.k.a. flying boats, were the preferred means of travel to cities with an enclosed harbor. That was because of the scarcity of runways capable of handling large aircraft. In 1935, the first commercial flight arrived in Pearl Harbor from California. This clipper ship carried bags of federal mail, marking the first official consignment from the U.S. mainland to Hawaii. Piloted by Captain Edwin Musick, Pan American's Pioneer Clipper completed its journey from California in just 18 hours of air travel. That was the answer we were looking for, but we had no winners. That's today's quiz. If you have something you'd like to share about our backyard quiz, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The closing film of this year's Hawaii International Film Festival created a lot of buzz for its surreal and darkly honest depiction of life in the Hawaiian Islands. The film centers on a native Hawaiian woman named Kea who, throughout the course of the film, deals with issues like homelessness, domestic abuse, and addiction. While the film has been praised for its gritty subject matter, director Christopher Kahunahana says that the intention was not to try to be anything only to serve as an honest depiction of the Hawaii he and so many others know. Here's a clip from the film's trailer. You don't need to be here. 
Just come home. We all must take care of the Aina. Because it will in turn take care of us. Grandma, is it gonna be alright? Who's trying to help you? And who's not? Get off me! The director, Kahuna Hana, spoke with the conversation's producer, Harris Patino, about the film. Waikiki, the film, is about Hawaii, about contemporary Hawaii and, the, you know, some of the issues which plague our communities. Um, it's about a young Hawaiian woman named Kea who's forced to navigate a world uh, where intergenerational violence, trauma, abuse, and poverty, and mental illness are daily battles for her. Um, so she is forced to negotiate between her diametrically opposed needs to survive in our modern society and the call of her ancestors, and this tears at her psyche. So it's like a lot of us feel this way as Hawaiians. It's like we want to participate, but at the same time, there's this greater calling. You know, our kupuna call us to respect the aina, to uh, aloha aina, to love the land. And sometimes in this society uh, where land is a commod- you know, just commodified, and sold to the highest bidder, it's like we we have a hard time connecting to our culture if our culture is based on the land and we don't have access to land. In most mainstream representations of Hawaiian film, we see more of a fixation on this idealized representation of the islands rather than on the yeah. real people who live here. Now, was it important for you to portray a more down-to-earth perspective of life in Hawaii? You know, obviously, yes. It was, uh, as a filmmaker, artist, you just want to present the world that you see uh, in a way that people can relate to. Um, art is always, and film is a, like a, it's like a mirror. You just hold it up to society, and what, what's there is what's seen, right? It's like people will see um, themselves in that mirror and hopefully uh, come away from it with a greater understanding of their context and Hawaii's context and um, their place in the society. You said that this film is not intended to serve as a look into the quote-unquote dark side of Hawaii, and instead it's really a look at the real Hawaii that many outside of the islands never see. What was it like for you to translate the reality of that life here into an artistic vision? You know, we weren't purposefully trying to be dark, but it's like that's what exists. You know, it's like the struggle to survive in Hawaii. It's a real issue here, which people need to uh, first address, recognize, and recognize and address, and until we can right some of the past wrongs, we can't really move forward. We can't, there can't be, never, can't be any healing if we can't address the problems, you know? So for us to try and present a more real representation of the world we live in, um, I don't, I mean, it was, it's not intentional. It just, it just is, you know? It's not like we were trying to be real. It's just, uh, it's what, it's the life that we, What's in front of us? It's what we see every day. It's our communities, it's our families, it's the people we know. And I just wanted to represent their struggles. Now, it's interesting you bring up that idea of being representative. The main character of this film is far more representative of Hawaii than what we normally get to see in the big picture. She is indigenous, she works multiple jobs, and she struggles with some of the more pervasive issues of the island, such as housing insecurity and domestic abuse. 
how important was it for you to depict these very real issues in a way that is true to what you know? You know, it's very important because these are the types of things that people don't want to really see or, you know, they, they tend to shy away from those realities. And, and by doing that, they don't, you know, they, have, they can't value those people if they remain invisible, you know. And so to allow people an opportunity to enter this world that Kale lives in and to see people for who they are and, and uh, you know, little slice of their life. I hope people will have some empathy when they see a person. You know, it's not, they won't just see that pretty smile. They have to realize that there's a lot more going on than is often recognized on in this, you know, an initial viewing of somebody. You know, people people have struggles that we just don't realize. And we should just learn to give people more respect for who they are and their struggles. As a society, we seem to be moving towards adopting far more representative views on indigenous people and their own perspectives. Was it your hope that this film would help to broaden that view? Uh, we just wanted to be a part of the conversation. You know, it's like we didn't, we're not trying to be indigenous. We just, this, this is who we are. You know, I'm Kanaka Maoli. Uh, this is my life. This is how I see our, we see the world. You know, so what, growing up here, we just have a different uh, idea on ways to tell stories or different perspectives. Um, you know, we have this idea called Makavalu which is literally translates to eight, eight eyes, but it's to look at things from eight different perspectives. And those perspectives uh, aren't always human perspectives. They can be the perspective of time. They can be the, can be the perspective of spiritual, spiritual space or a rock. Or, you know, so I think that's the beauty of the Hawaiian culture. And I think indigenous cultures are our connection to land, you know, to, to, the, to earth. To protect Earth, we know that we're part of Earth. You know, it's like we can't separate ourselves from nature. We are nature. At Waikiki, the film was chosen to close out the 40th Hawaii International Film Festival, which was a much different affair this year due to COVID-19. Your film touches on mental health, domestic abuse, addiction, and several other issues that have been compounded pretty severely by the pandemic. Do you think this film has a particular resonance coming out at a time in which Hawaii has been so strongly affected? Oh, uh, you know, absolutely. I um, no, I, I had wanted to the film out a few years ago but it kind of wasn't done with me and I you know it's always frustrating because you want you know you want to share your work and everyone's hard work um but the film decided that now is the best time for it to come out and you know who would have known like you know six months ago that so many things would be happening within our society which I think will allow people to take a uh, will give them an opportunity to ask these harder questions. I think they're more open to the topics that we discuss in the film, you know, with the closure of Waikiki, and people can look at it and say, hey, you know, maybe this isn't the best usage of our resources. To cut, you know, 10 million people a year visiting is like, you know, when, where's, where's the threshold? You know, it's like, when does this impose on our quality of life, right? How does it affect our communities? And, uh, you know, because of the pandemic, people are struggling right now i think this will resonate with people because they see themselves they know these people and unfortunately it's real you know it's not pleasant but it's it's the reality like people are having a hard time now for sure now you said that you weren't trying to be real you weren't trying to be indigenous intentionally in the making of this film you were just being real with what you knew and what your experience was do you hope maybe that in the future this film might have some sort of impact to open up other filmmakers to make depictions of Hawaii that are just that, real? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like we are happy to be part of a thriving film community here. It's small, but there's so many talented filmmakers. And, I, you know, I definitely know within the next couple of years we'll see at least a few more feature films from Kanaka filmmakers. And uh, it's great because everyone's perspective is so different. Our styles are so different that we all just complement each other. It's like everyone's success builds more success for the next filmmaker. And we're just happy to be a part of this great community. That was Christopher Kahunahano talking to The Conversation's Harrison Patino about his recent film, Waikiki. We are all pal for today. Tomorrow, we throw the spotlight on another film, this one about Molokai's George Helm. We would like to hear from you. As the year starts to draw to a close, what are you looking forward to in 2021? Got any resolutions to share? Color Talk Backline, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 